0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. For the rest of us, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's our our text for this morning. And we're going to finish up this chapter. Um, And as we noted last week, this is kind of a two-part series with one kind of overarching outline. But uh, if we just look ahead to chapter 9 and verse 24, it's really a theme verse that we have used for years to anchor our philosophy of ministry and Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receive the prize? And he says, run in such a way that you may win. And uh, that theme of running to win has been something that we've latched on to and really uh, tried to reiterate again and again and again through the years. It is this, the point that Paul's making is that the Christian life Is run with urgency, it is run with such focus, it is run with such exertion that he wants us to lay hold of that glorious prize, which is eternal life. Um, And Paul says it's not enough to just be running the race, you know, on, on the track. There's no value, he says, in running later on without aim. There's no reward, he says, for beating the air. The idea there is shadow boxing. He says, those who receive the imperishable crown are those who run purposely, they are those who run perseveringly, and they are those who run thus victoriously. And the pursuit of Christ by grace and through faith is indeed the greatest of pursuits because it bestows on us the greatest of prizes, which is God himself. As we saw last time, Uh, last Sunday, God has laid out two pathways for his children to pursue holiness. Um, And and both of those pathways require the mutual ministry of other believers in the church, in the the local church. At the end of chapter 4, he talks about discipleship. uh, And then in chapter 5 here, he talks about discipline. Uh, and this is vitally important for us to understand. You and I, we don't grow in isolation from one another. We don't grow um, in uh, on our own, but in commitment and in fellowship with other believers in the local church. And we said God's primary, his preferred method of pursuing holiness is the pathway of discipleship. This is what Paul exhorts us to at the end of chapter 4. In First Corinthians, where he says, "Be imitators of me," it's a life of imitation. Uh, one showing another how to live a godly life. Uh, it's Paul, as he says, says there, sending Timothy to remind them of God's ways, in which uh, he, which he teaches in every church, so that they would in, imitate and follow in his footsteps. It's, again, it's a picture of imitation discipleship. Uh, it is every member contributing what each joint supplies for the building up of the body. In love, Ephesians four. Um, that is a, that is the primary pathway for for us to pursue holiness is discipleship. But there is a second pathway which <clears throat> we can go down, or rather, be taken down, and that is discipline. The the path of discipline. God disciplines. Uh, Hebrews twelve says those whom he loves so, and he says specifically, so that we would share in his holy character, that we would be more like him. Uh, he, he says in Hebrews twelve ten, they our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good, so that we might share His holiness. And that that's really important to understand because biblical discipline, when it's carried out, uh, whether that's carried out by God Himself or by other believers. In accordance with the word of God, that is an expression of divine love, not divine punishment. It is not punitive. It is corrective. It is restorative. And, uh, and God uses many kind of angles to, uh, to discipline us. He can use our conscience. We talked about that in equipping hour briefly. He can discipline us when we're convicted by our sin, both um, from the word of God, perhaps, or our conscience that's been informed by the word of God. Uh, He can discipline us through circumstances, and he certainly will use trials and difficulties and and his providential kind of twists and turns to refine us and to make us more like Jesus. And lastly, he can use correction. God can and does use other believers to confront our sin and to call us back to the true path. So all of those, both the conscience, our circumstances, even the correction of other Christians— are uh, in his infinite wisdom the, the, the means by which God has built discipline into the fabric of his church so that we would walk in strength and obedience. So, um, but the goal of all of it, both discipleship and discipline, is always holiness, our, our holiness. And, and so discipline is really the, the, the theme of chapter 5. judging, if you will, is the theme of chapter 5. And so that's what we want to look at in detail this morning. I just want to read all 13 verses to set it before us. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that The one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you were assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. "'But I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world "'or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, "'for then you would have to go out of the world. "'But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother "'if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater "'or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, "'not even to eat with such a one. "'For what have I to do with judging outsiders?' Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So we can break this whole chapter down into four parts. Verses 1 to 2, we saw the problem of sin in the church. Verses 3 to 5, we saw the the protection that God has built into the church against sin in the church. Uh, we'll see in verses 6 to 8 the purging of sin from the church. And in verse four, uh, verses 9 to 13, we'll conclude this Sunday looking at the priority of dealing with sin in the church. But just by way of quick review, the problem of sin in the church is laid out in verses 1 to 2. And we have a church, the Corinthian church here, and they were tolerating, Paul says, open immorality and... And they weren't just quietly ignoring this immorality. They were actually proud of it to some degree. Verse 1 describes a man, a young man, living with his stepmother, most likely, presumably because she had divorced the father. Maybe the father died. We don't really know. But whatever the situation is, this younger man is living with this, uh, his stepmother, and in an open physical relationship, and everyone in the church, more or less, was aware of it. And this man, this individual, not the, not the, not the wife or the, the, the stepmother, but certainly the man was professing faith in Jesus. And he was a part of the fellowship of the church. And all of this, we said, is a flagrant violation of the Word of God. And we cited several uh, portions of the law, Leviticus uh, and Deuteronomy 27 and like, where it specifically condemns this kind of uh, incestuous relationship. The issue then for them, for this church, as he writes to them, was black and white. It was cut and dry, as is cut and dry as you could ever have it. And they were doing nothing about it. And in fact, they were even, he says, boasting about it. And what shocked Paul wasn't even the sin itself. Really, when you read the context and you see what he's saying, it wasn't the sin itself that bothered him so much. I mean, it's still wrong and it's it's evil. But what concerned him most of all was how they were dealing with it or not dealing with it, as the case may have been. In verse 2, he says, "...you have become boastful, arrogant, and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst." He says this isn't something to be commended, this is something to be confronted, this isn't something to be embraced, this is something to be excised from the church like a spiritual cancer before it spreads. And he lays out the process for that to happen in verses 3 to 5, and that's what we saw in great detail last Sunday, the protection against sin in the church. God has built a mechanism of protection into the fabric of the local church so as to uh, protect it from sin's corrupting influence. And that protection is discipline and restoration. So Paul says, For I am my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present in the name of the Lord Jesus. When you were assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul shows them that when a professing Christian in the church has become hardened in their sin, as this individual was, this is not a person who stumbled into sin. This is a person who is willful and rebellious in their sin. It is the responsibility of the church To judge with the authority of Christ Himself. That's why He says He has already judged Him in the name of the Lord Jesus. The end of verse, uh, excuse me, the beginning of verse 4 ties uh, that phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus, it ties with the act of judging, where He says, I have already judged Him. And He's done so in what way? In the name of the Lord Jesus. It is the responsibility of the church to judge with the authority of Christ himself and to call out the one who is sinning and, if necessary, remove them from their midst. And Paul describes it in verse 5 as handing this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That's the, that's the picture. It is to turn the individual believer out from the realm of Christ in his church and to turn him out into the realm of Satan to the world, the unbelieving world. This is by no means, and this is important to note, this is by no means our first response to sin in the church. In fact, this is the final and the most serious response after many attempts at calling that individual to repentance that we would take such an action. What Paul describes here in verse 5 is really the fourth and the final step of church discipline as outlined by Jesus in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18. And we looked at that in detail. We're not going to go back through all of it. But suffice it to say that sin in the church starts by, is confronted first in private conversation. You, individual, see someone in a pattern of sin, an obvious pattern of sin, and you go to them and you show them their sin, and hopefully that's all that ever needs to happen because they see it, they acknowledge it, they turn away from it, it's done. But if they don't hear you, you can go back in step two, which we said is private corroboration, two or three witnesses confirming the matter, and calling this individual back to obedience. But if they don't even receive that, the, the ministry of two or three, then it moves up a level to public confrontation, and that is it is brought to the church and the church is then sent to that individual to call them back to repentance and obedience to the word of God. And if they will not even respond to the whole church going to them and calling them back, then finally, fourthly and finally, there is a public condemnation. And the scripture says, Jesus says, you are to treat them as an unbeliever. What Paul describes then here in this text is that fourth and final step. It's come to this. They must be removed from the midst of the church. That means that they no longer worship with the church. They no longer fellowship with believers in the church. They no longer participate in shared ministries with believers in the church. In fact, they're not even to have casual interactions. Verse 11 says, not even to eat with such a one. They are left to themselves in the big wide, wicked world. And that is because that's the world they're choosing to live in by their rebellion. But again, all of it has its ultimate end that their soul might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And we see that at the end of verse 5. The hope being all through this, this discipline process is that if they truly are Christ, that their separation from the church and the fellowship of the church would turn them back to God, that they would walk in obedience, that they would finish the race confirming that their faith was in fact real and thus be saved. So you see, even though it might look harsh and it might seem unkind or judgmental for the church to publicly condemn or remove someone who is openly sinning from the church fellowship, God's word says through the Apostle Paul, that's actually necessary. And at times it may become necessary for them to experience the full consequences of their rebellion and thus, by God's grace, escape from the devil's snare. God will essentially accomplish his salvation, as he does so often in the scriptures, through Judgment, through the means of judgment. And we ended last time by noting that when the church disciplines with biblical faithfulness, it acts with heavenly approval, heavenly sanction and approval, which is why Jesus says, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. He says, Again, if I say that if two or three of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven, for where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. It's not an encouragement for prayer meetings that God will join them. It is a reminder that when the church acts on earth, it acts with a divine mandate and divine authority. Paul says, and that's what Paul's saying here. He says, I judge in the name of our Lord Jesus And he says, as the church is assembled, they do so, he says, with the power of our Lord Jesus. He is appealing to the authority of God delegated to his representatives in the church, the local church. Whether it's putting them out publicly or bringing them back publicly, which is, of course, the goal. The church can act with heavenly approval and authority. But why then is there such urgency? I think the question that maybe is burning in some people's minds: Why is there such urgency with Paul to protect the church? Why is he so, you know, why so paranoid? Why? Why is is he just being elitist, or is he just being kind of judgmental, or what? What is the deal? Is is Paul jumping up and down here? Um, you know unnecessarily telling them to remove the sinning brother from their midst? And um, the answer to that those questions is given to us in the text that we're going to look at in verses 6 to 8 and even down into verse 13. The reason that Paul tells us and them that it's so urgent for them, so necessary for them to deal with this has nothing to do with paranoia, has nothing to do with um, his personal reputation or, or his pride, but it has everything to do and reaches all the way back to the character of God and the cross. And that's the point. He has done so much for his children that we are moved, in a sense, to act in response. And so we pick up maybe point three in our outline, which is really going to be point one this morning. And that is in verses 6 to 8, we see the purging of sin from the church. They need to purge sin from the church. You know, we've seen the problem, we've seen the protection, the mechanism of protection, and now he's going to give us the reason the, um, the, that we must purge sin in our midst. Paul makes several appeals in verses 6 to 8 to underscore that as a church we have to deal with sin. We can't just sweep it under the rug. First, Paul appeals to Christ's holiness. We see that in in this text, verses 6 to 8. He says, "...your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven." nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity, sincerity and truth. Again, there's an immoral person in their midst. They need to get rid of this person because he is hardened in his immorality, and the whole church is aware of it. They're tolerating it. Immorality of such a kind, he says, that doesn't even exist in the unbelieving world. That's how, how egregious this is. And he warns them to purge the unrepentant person from their midst, lest that person's corruption spread like leavening agent throughout the entire congregation and contaminate, as it were, the whole lump. Of course, leaven in the New Testament is used figuratively uh, throughout to describe influence, this idea of influence and it's often used as a word picture to describe evil influence sinful influence and having used then this word picture of leaven like a yeast type agent that spreads through a lump of dough as sins to describe sins evil influence paul points back to their instruction that they would have received under the law that Israel purge all leaven from their homes in anticipation of celebrating the Passover. So, in Exodus 12, and verse 15, uh, Moses instructed the people of Israel, he says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. So, uh, this is how they were to celebrate the Passover year by year. And he uses this picture uh, and, and appeals to the Old Testament law in which Israel were to clean out the leaven from their homes in anticipation of Passover. And it illustrates how we, they and we must clean out or literally purge, because that's the idea, it's, it's emphatic. Verse 7, it is, it, we must purge open sin in the fellowship of the local church. The unleavened bread that he describes here symbolizes and reminds us of God's decisive work to free Israel from slavery, to, to, to free Israel from bondage to uh, Egypt. And he did that by the Passover itself, the 10th plague, which was to, was to take the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt. And so the, the unleavened bread symbolizes that decisive work. And in the same way the church is to be, he says here, unleavened. That is free from sin's evil influence on account of the decisive work of Jesus at the cross. That is the picture here. It is an appeal to the law. And having given that command in verse 7, that the church be a new lump, as it were, a new lump of dough, holy and pure, free from sin's kind of leavening influence, he gives the the kind of foundational reason. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Just as the redeemed in Israel, in that day, year after year, celebrated the sacrifice of Passover with a lamb and unleavened bread, in the same way the redeemed in God's church ought to celebrate the sacrifice of the final Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, with unleavened hearts and lives. Lives, then, that are free from sins, dominating and corrupting influence. Israel did that once a year. We're to do that all the time. We are to live our entire lives that way. There's no time, you know, there's not a time of year for this. He says, this is what you're to do. Clean out the leaven that you may be a new lump, just as, in fact, you are. So Christ who is our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, we must walk in a manner of such incredible grace from God. That's the picture here. So, so Paul is appealing and calling his church to live holy lives. That's the point. Christ our Passover lamb, the one who committed no sin, the scripture says, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That one who was sacrificed for us has made us holy. Therefore, we must be holy, even as he is holy. That's, that's the idea. He appeals to Christ's holiness. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross Here's the reason, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. So so Paul appeals to Christ's holiness for the need to purge sin in the church. He also appeals to Christ's power in these verses. He appeals to Christ's power. The Passover was set down in all of its prescriptions in Exodus 12, 3 to 5. And it was set up by God as a memorial for the people. They were to practice and to keep the Passover year by year um, to remind them of how God had redeemed them out of Egypt and delivered them from bondage. I mean, they were enslaved for 400 years. And God set in motion this deliverance through a series of miraculous plagues, which we all must have learned about at some point if we've been around the church as young people. We teach the kids all the plagues, you know, and frogs and gnats and, you know, whatever. We explain all these details. And none of those plagues, though, broke Pharaoh's will until the final plague. And that plague was the most devastating of all because God would kill the firstborn of everything and in doing so would remove the nation's strength, tragically, and he would do so dramatically. So God ordered the Israelites to slay a lamb and to put its blood on the doorpost of the home. They were to sacrifice the animal, bring it in their home for three days, sacrifice it, take some of the blood, put it on the doorpost, roast the flesh, eat it in celebration, and we know from the Scriptures that that very night, the angel of the lord came through and passed over every house in israel that had the blood upon the doorposts but every house in egypt became a house of mourning what happened then at the first passover was a preview of the coming deliverance that god would bring about for israel removing them from bondage in egypt and what would happen to Israel as they would be judged. It was, in other words, an overwhelming display of God's power. When you read and think about Passover, I mean, if you need to alliterate it, think about power. This is God saying, I am God, and your gods are no gods at all. Notice then that the greatest mercies to God's people are accompanied by God's greatest plagues, Upon our enemies. The Passover was the salvation of Israel and it was the ruin of Egypt. And in the same way, Christ, our Passover, is the eternal salvation and destruction of sin's slavery and it is the ultimate ruin of Satan's power over our hearts and lives. He no longer commands us or owns us like he once did. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 56 says, The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our greatest enemy in the world, and we we need to be reminded of this sometimes, our greatest enemy in the world is our own sin. Our own sinful hearts. Because sin is, that if we have not taken it to the Lord in repentance and faith, will separate us from God, and will bring about the sentence of death and eternal judgment. Your greatest need is to deal with your sin before the Lord. And what we're so, what we, what we are filled up with such joy and thankfulness for is that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed to destroy sin's power over our hearts. And over our lives. He went to the cross for us. And by his mighty power, we are no longer slaves of sin, but we've been made children of the living God. So, so in these verses, Paul is appealing to God's power for our need to purge sin in the church He makes a third appeal in these verses as well. God appeals to Christ's sufficiency. Christ's sufficiency. While God's initial design for the Passover was a memorial, it ultimately pointed to the Messiah. The Passover was looking ahead, even beyond uh, Israel's immediate uh, history. All the animal sacrifices under the law were appointed by God to remind Israel that they were sinners and that they they needed to turn to Yahweh by faith that he would provide the promised redeemer. But the Passover lamb, the lamb itself was meant to point them to the Messiah. He looks ahead to the one whose blood would be shed in their place to provide eternal salvation. See, the animals weren't enough. The animals didn't get it done. And they knew that, at least they should have known that, the writer of Hebrews says by the same sacrifices which they offered continually, year by year, they by no way, by no means could make perfect those who draw near. But John says of Jesus as he arrives on the scene in John 1, he calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everything under the law was a shadow of of the good things to come. And the Passover lambs looked ahead to Jesus Christ and to him crucified, the one who would give himself as a sacrifice for our sin. And when that lamb of God offered himself in the place of sinners, he became the final and complete Passover lamb. When he hung on the cross and God's wrath for our sin was poured out on him and expunged, He redeemed us from the curse of the law, the scripture Galatians 3 says, having become a curse for us. He drank it down. He drank it down, and in the end, he cried out, it is finished. And Hebrews says, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed, and it is finished. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. All our sin exchanged for all his righteousness by faith. In other words, Christ's work is sufficient. It's enough. That's enough. We do not need to, nor can we, add anything to Christ's righteousness given to us by faith. And if Christ has done all of that for us, if he is so thoroughly and so completely dealt with our sin through his, son, through his death, through his resurrection, what sort of people ought we to be? That's his appeal in verse 8. Therefore, this is the... Application. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, You're a new, unleavened batch of dough. Paul says, That's what you are. The end of verse, middle of verse 7. The implication is that we must live that way. We must walk that way. We must be. That individually, we must be that corporately. Christ's temple is a holy temple. God's people are a holy people, having been grafted into God's family. God's people are meant to keep this. The picture here is this ongoing, continual feast of celebration. This is our Christian lives, and we do that with holiness, holy living, and the old leaven here isn't just limited to immorality. It's not just talking about the issue that they're dealing with. He broadens it out and widens the application by, by saying we, we are to apply that to uh, include malice and wickedness. It's kind of an umbrella set of terms. It covers all sin, all sin, iniquity. So Christ's death has freed us from sin. Therefore, he says we are to live as those who have been liberated from its penalty and its power over our lives, sin's power over our lives. We're to live, he says, the unleavened life of sincerity and truth, lives that can withstand the scrutiny of the full light of the day. No deceit, no duplicity, no covering up, just pure motives built on the foundation of God's truth. That's the picture here. So he appeals to us to purge sin from our midst by looking at Christ's power, his holiness, and even his sufficiency. But Paul ends, we'll look at this very briefly here in verses 9 to 13, by clearing up a point of misunderstanding from a previous letter. We don't actually have this letter. We don't even know what the letter's contents were, but we know enough about it based on what he says here that it ties in tightly with the issue that he's dealing with, with this sinning person in their midst. And the misunderstanding that Paul is going to clarify in verses 9 to 13, uh, quite frankly, is a misunderstanding that we can have as well. And Paul wants them, just like he wants us, to, th- fourthly, understand the priority of dealing with sin in the church. The priority of dealing with sin in the church. He says, uh, I wrote you in my letter, what letter he's talking about, we're not exactly sure, a previous letter, not an inspired letter. I wrote, in my, uh, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, But I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. The point of clarification that Paul makes is one that we need to hear too. When he warns, don't associate with immoral people, don't have anything to do with those kind of folks, uh, greedy people, swindlers, idolaters, um, covetous, these kind of folks, he doesn't mean, and he's not telling us when he wrote that in his previous letter, he's not saying, go out, look around you in the world and find all the evil people in the world and get away from them. That's not what He's saying, don't identify all the evil sinners in the world and, and try and distance yourself from them. Paul says that would be impossible. Verse 10, if, if, if I don't mean the immoral people and sinners of this world or with the covetous and so forth because then you'd have to actually leave the world because they're everywhere. There's sinners everywhere. He says, what I mean is don't associate with professing Christians who live in open rebellion to God's word. He says, don't even eat with such a one. Which again comes back to this final issue of uh, final step of church discipline. If they refuse to repent, remove them from their midst, hand them over to Satan, as he says in verse five, purge the old leaven. This is the... Um, what we need to be concerned about. And the reasoning is given in verses 12 and 13. And this is really important. I love how Paul doesn't just say what to do, he tells you why. Here's the reason. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul makes it clear that it's not... His job, and it's not our job as Christians to pass final judgment on the people of this world in their present existence. And the reasoning he gives is simple that's God's job. God will deal with them. God's judgment that he speaks about here is future. God's judgment that he speaks about here is perfect with absolute clarity and insight. Because he knows all things. And God's judgment will be complete. But until then, the church has to take the world as it comes to it. See, we're God's temple in the world as the church. And as such, we offer a stark contrast to what the world sees. So in that sense, we do confront the world. And we do pass a measure of judgment on the world. Simply by how we live. I mean, they look at us and they think... Well, you know, they're judging me. We're just living in accordance with God's word. So in that sense, we obviously will pass some kind of judgment on the world. But he's saying it's not our job, it's not our priority to sentence those who belong to Satan in another worldview, in another age altogether. It's not our job to sentence them to hell. In other words, the time for that judgment will come in the future and it will be measured out by God himself. Verse 13, those who are outside, unbelievers, God will deal with them. God will deal with them. But the opposite is true for people in the church. And that's why he says what he does in verse 12. He asks this rhetorical question, do you not judge those who are within the church? And the obvious answer is yes. That is our job. That is our priority. Verse 19, therefore, or excuse me, verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And that's a quotation from Deuteronomy 17 and verse 7, where Israel was to purge the rebellious lawbreaker by casting them outside the camp and stoning them. So the section, the whole section concludes the way it starts. Paul has been making the same argument through the whole text, and he's saying the church needs to act responsibly to deal with sin in its own midst, and boasting in how they tolerate sin, unrepentant, blatant, obvious sin that is so clearly against God's word that is to be irrefutable. He says, that's not responsible at all. That's irresponsible. And for their sakes, as well as the sake of the brother who is sinning or sister who is sinning, they are to put him out or her out. And I think the practical, one of the practical applications here is one that we need to be reminded of. I need to be reminded of this. And that is this. We need to be more concerned about believers Acting like unbelievers in the church, then we need to be concerned about unbelievers acting like unbelievers in the world. I'll say that again because it's a little bit of a. We need to be more concerned about believers, professing believers, acting like unbelievers in the church than we need to be concerned about unbelievers who don't profess anything about Christ. Acting like those who don't profess anything about Christ in the world. As I joke with our kids all the time, I say, "Pagans are going to pagan. That's what they do. It, it, it's what we all did apart from the grace of God. This is it. We should not lose our minds when the world calls evil good and good evil. It should grieve us. We don't have to compromise truth. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we don't need... There's very little value added by us running around breathlessly condemning all the wicked people in the world for all their wicked deeds. Why would we expect them to do anything different? Right? Can a leopard change its spots? Now, I'm not saying that we cozy up to sin or we make light of sin. No, no, no. That's not what we're saying. But we cannot exacerbate, we cannot expend ourselves day after day losing our minds over what the world is going to do. What should be our highest priority? And this is Paul's point in the entire section is we need to confront sin first in our own hearts and lives. Start with that and then the hearts and lives of those who profess faith in Jesus in his church. See, Paul was no monk. He was no separatist. Neither was Jesus. The unbelieving world is not the enemy we need to purge or get away from. They are the mission field that we need to run toward. What was the Pharisees' constant complaint against Jesus? Do you remember? They got so... They just lost their minds over what? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. They just couldn't fathom. How could he have anything to do with these evil, wicked people? And... um, They were more worried, the Pharisees were more worried about sin outside the camp than the blatant, festering sin within their midst, in their own hearts. That's why he called them whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside he said, you're full of dead man's bones. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that same trap. Jesus reserved his harshest judgment and condemnation for the religious leaders and their immediate followers you realize that he did not run around condemning pagans being pagans he pref- he preached the gospel he heralded the good news of the kingdom but he was the most strident and the most Pointed in his criticism and judgment of those who profess to know God, but inside they refuse to deal with sin in their own midst. Because they were held to a higher standard. And so it should be with us. So it should be with us. Over the years, I've been criticized by some for punching right a lot. In other words, for being more vexed about sin and sin issues that I see in our churches and by pastors and individuals that people listen to and look up to, when I see sin happening there and I call that out, I've been criticized for, quote-unquote, punching right rather than turning and criticizing all the you know, pagans in the world doing all their evil things and haranguing about that. But I will say this, I will gladly accept that criticism because that's exactly what God calls us to do. In his word, you see. We're to prioritize sin in the body of Christ so that we would be a new lump. And so, if we're going to point fingers at people's sin, we need to be the most... Critical and the most introspective, first of all, with our own hearts, starts with us. And secondly, we need to be willing to call out sin in our midst, in the church, because we are held to a higher standard. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. This is a a picture of of a continual living before God, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we deal with sin in the church because it is the priority. This is what we are to focus our time and attention on most. And uh, by God's grace... We don't have to do that very often. We don't have to bring someone before the church, and we don't have to call out sin uh, and put others out of the church very frequently. But if it comes to that, we will. We will. Because we we know how corrupting sin is when it goes on unchecked and open in the church. We're going to be that church. By the grace of God, we will strive to be a new lump. For such, he says, you are. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this reminder. It is indeed such a powerful picture as Paul draws in the law of God and the word of God and Cross-referencing in Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus, and he he draws on insights and truths of our Lord and the Gospels and His teaching. And Lord, we are sometimes our our understanding of these things is so surface and so small. It, it begs to wonder if we truly understand it at all. And and yet in Your kindness, you you show us all those connections and you peel back the curtain and help us see how all of it has been moving toward a singular purpose, and that is that we would live holy lives, that we would live transparently before you, that we would press on. We, we all sin, Lord. We all struggle with the flesh. We wish we didn't. But we know that you have built discipleship into the church to make us more like Christ, and you've even given us the, the loving discipline of others to call us back to your standard. Lord, may we be humble to receive that correction when it comes. Help us to be patient with those around us because we know that we ourselves are just as frail and feeble. Help us to love others in our confrontation and, and to always have that as the motivating influence. But Lord, help us to be a holy church. And as we come to the Lord's table, we pray that we would eat as it were, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We ask your blessing on it in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at CascadesBibleChurch.com.